Welcome to Inside Seaweed, the podcast looking deep into the seaweed industry through the stories of pioneers, entrepreneurs and innovators. I'm Fed and my guest today is Californian designer Julia Marsh, who is the co-founder and CEO of Sway, a venture-backed materials company based in San Francisco. Sway produces compostable packaging made from seaweed. I mentioned Julia's background as a designer because, as you will find out shortly, this has influenced the whole company's approach and it is one of the reasons that makes Sway's experience very much worth paying attention to. So please enjoy my conversation with Julia Marsh. Julia, welcome to the show. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for making the time. Look, I, I to set the scene, I wanted to start by talking about the Tom Ford Plastic Innovation Prize. And first of all, huge congratulations for being awarded the, the first place. Thank you. What did winning mean for you, both in an abstract sense, but also at a very practical level? So this was a global competition, the Tom Ford Plastic Innovation Prize. They solicited applications from around the world. There were 64 submissions of our direct peers, not just in seaweed, but across all different sorts of materials, using everything from pea protein to agricultural waste. Hmm. So winning first place is functionally saying, in a sea of solutions, seaweed is worthy of attention. And the fact that in the finalist pool that was vetted by a scientific advisory board, by all sorts of industry professionals, by some of the biggest brands in the world, in that finalist pool, five of the solutions are seaweed-based, including Sway. And then narrowed down even more to the final winners of the prize after a year of testing, mm -hmm. Sway came out as the first place winner. So really, in the more abstract sense, it just means to the world, Tom Ford and some of the most impressive people making decisions around materials believe in seaweed. And then on a more practical sense, it meant um, an investment of $600,000. It means that we're now participating in an accelerator phase where the prize is continuing to support us in partnership with brands and with connections to manufacturing partners. Yeah. Um, and it means, yeah, a lot of great data too on our, our end of life, like what happens when the material makes its way into compost and all sorts of other practical things. But yeah, it's been a total, total honor. I can imagine. Uh, you, you said it was five seaweed solutions. Is that out of how many? Five out of ten? Out of eight. Eight, eight finalists, eight. Wow. five of them were seaweed-based. Yeah, wild, huh? So, <laughs> yes, a really big percentage, isn't it? Do you remember what the other three were? Yes, of course. So there was Notpla, of course, Zero Circle out of India, Kelpie also out of the UK, and Maria out of Iceland. So that was, you know, a good representation of geography and clearly a lot of different approaches, all working probably with different species of seaweed, different processes. And I think all of the seaweed people admire and respect each other because we understand how difficult it was. So mostly my team was just really encouraged to see such a high concentration of, yeah, seaweed representation. <laughs> I'm curious to, to hear, because you obviously massive representation in terms of seaweed materials. I'm assuming what wasn't seaweed was other plant-based materials? 
Yes. So the premise of this prize was let's identify the most scalable, cost-effective, high-performing, biologically degradable and impactful materials. So functionally, that means that you're going to be sourcing from bio-based sources. The other two finalists, or maybe, yeah, oh, other three finalists were uh, Zampla, Genesis, and Luanda Biotech. And Zampla works with pea protein, Genesis works with fermented agricultural waste. And I don't know what Luanda Biotech works with. That's right, but 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 you remember. I don't know if you had any feedback. Do you know why? I guess it's a two-stage question. First of all, do you know why seaweed was seen as so much better in a way than the competition? And the second level is: Do you know why? Okay, could you elaborate why Sway's solution was was awarded the the first place? Seaweed, broadly speaking, has the most compelling and inherently regenerative sourcing story. And it's why in I probably our shared opinion, there's a bit of a seaweed renaissance happening right now where everyone seems to have some innovation related to seaweed. I think broadly speaking, the sourcing story of investing in oceans and aquaculture is very compelling. The idea that we're not using fresh water or land, et cetera, et cetera. All the reasons that we are enraptured with seaweed, I think is why seaweed was so popular. Why Sway specifically stood out is we have designed technology that's really well suited for scale. So our whole thesis is within the circular economy, we're thinking about regeneration and contributing back to natural systems, but we also want to take advantage of the infrastructure that already exists. And one of the most effective ways of building a healthier planet and healthier future is to transition all the plastic manufacturers over to using better materials. So we work with traditional plastic manufacturing and the resins that we've designed plug into their systems seamlessly. And at the end of the day, in addition to all the incredible stuff we're doing around sourcing or in partnership with farms around end of life, all those factors, at the end of the day, it's the scale piece that wins. So this potential ability to scale up yes. more quickly and more effectively than, than other solutions. Yep efficiently and in a, in a cost-effective way. Yeah. Did you take away any particular lesson from the process? Quite a few. One of the best parts of that prize was that they tested all of our materials in novel scenarios that we wouldn't otherwise have, have a method for testing. And one of them included a partnership with the Seattle Aquarium, where they mimicked what would happen if marine life ingested all of the competitor materials. And so we actually got to find out in a simulated whale gut, and this was in test tubes, this was not, no wildlife was involved, but in a simulated whale gut, they tested our materials and the Seattle Aquarium came away saying, Sway wins this test. And presumably that means, yes, there's no toxins or, or negative effects. There's no, there are no plastics in this material. It is not causing harm. So that, that was a really great takeaway for us. Obviously, we don't want to encourage litter and we don't want our materials going into natural places, but you have to design for reality and understand the reality that you don't have full control over where materials go after they've been purchased or used. It's a possibility you need to plan for, I guess. Yes. Okay. We might come back to that because I think I've heard you talk about biological circularity 
and similar concepts. So I really would do, do want to come back to it if we have a, a chance. But a fairly substantial topic that I wanted to explore with you today revolves around your supply chain and how you go about sourcing your ingredients. For my first question is, do you source raw seaweed or processed ingredients? Both. So primarily we're looking for the polysaccharides. We're looking for the extracted alginate, agar, carrageenan, but we're also able to work with raw biomass and we're able to work with seaweed in a lot of different states as part of our, our strategy in the long term to reduce waste and take advantage of the whole biomass. Do you have any preference? <laughs> across species? Across across. No, I, in terms of format. Of course, it's easiest to work with a really fine grade, you know, fine particle size extracted polysaccharide or, or I guess phycocolloid. We look for great gel strength and we look for abundance in terms of the original seaweed feedstock. But in as a overarching strategy, our aim is to be as agnostic as possible in terms of the origin because we want to be able to source from lots of parts of the world. We want to be able to invest in, in biodiverse farms and we want to build that, yeah, that long-term vision of a world where we're not over-extracting one species or, or one particular extract. Why is that important? Is it to do with scaling again? Yep. I mean, the future that I'm envisioning and my team is envisioning is one where we've expanded seaweed aquaculture using a lot of the tenants of regenerative farming, which is obviously the buzzword and the theme of this past decade plus. But part of that means that, yeah, I'm not asking a supplier to only produce capophycus or only grassalaria or only whatever other species. It means embedding diversity in the sourcing strategy from the beginning that we can kind of reap the benefits of a future bioeconomy and blue economy that's providing benefits to ocean health and, and to communities. You may have already answered this, at least partially, but I was curious to understand which seaweed species do you tap into for manufacturing your product? We're looking at what's commercially available, and then we're looking at what's the most productive in the most regions. So that boils down to maybe a handful of species. Yeah, some of them I've already listed. But we source browns and reds primarily. Okay. We're able to work with greens. And of the browns and reds, we love, yeah, macrocystis, grassalaria, capophycus, bladderwrack even. We, yeah, there's, there's a myriad of species that, that we work with. In our lab, we have dozens and dozens of species and strains. And we're constantly working to expand. I guess a lot of this will be in development and probably evolving every day. So your answers to today are probably going to be different from what you could give in a month's time. But um, I'm interested in understanding, you know, in this process, what sort of criteria do you apply for choosing one species versus another or one material versus another? It's availability, reliability. We do have a preference for year-round cultivation, but we're also invested in partnering with farms that have one harvest season, like what's going on in Maine with, with sugar kelp, for instance. Uh -huh. But yeah, availability is, is number one and productivity. Number two, of course, is just intertwined with performance. The materials that we see perform the best in our products. As I mentioned, we're looking for excellent gel strength. We're looking for consistency of the material. 
And I would say number three is, is just the impact story. So we're solely sourcing from farms, ocean farms, and the partners that we work with need to be able to supply some degree of transparency into the farming methods that we can understand, yeah, contribution to overall environmental and, and, and social health. I want to ask you about, more about the, your partners, but before we do that, just to paint a picture geographically, where does the cultivation and the processing occur? We have a global network. So a lot of our partners are spread in North and South America. They're based obviously throughout Asia, in Europe. We have partners on the Saharan coast of Africa. We have partners in Australia. Really? We try to cover a, a lot of bases because the future that we're envisioning is that as we scale, we're able to co-locate our production with the centers of cultivation. And we want to get a, a head start on understanding that landscape. We've tried to prioritize farms that are as close to home as possible. And I would say our closest partnerships are with a lot of the emerging farms that are based here in the States, including, for example, Atlantic Sea Farms out of Maine. And you said something interesting, which is you're trying to already look ahead and place the farming close to the processing facility. Absolutely. Is that, a, again, a criteria for partnering with these players? Today it's not, but we do, yeah, we do look into the future and say, how efficient can we make our su supply chain? How can we shorten or lessen the overall footprint and the lead times associated with sourcing the material? In a dream case, the farm is within a 25 kilometer radius of the processing facility. The processing facility is proximal to the manufacturing plant that's producing our sway product. So I think that's, you know, that's the future of the bioeconomy where as much as possible localizing supply chains and creating a horizontal scaling model where the farmers are networked and connected to the, the manufacturers. One of the themes that at the Sericulture Conference Europe was the need to urgently lower seaweed production cost to achieve the prices that we need. Is price of raw materials, including ingredients, for you a concern at the moment? Yes, I think. Any, yeah, anyone would say yes, because a big portion of our motivation is ensuring that as much profit as possible is going directly to the farmer. And in order for that to happen, you're dealing with a premium. I think the opportunity lies in more efficient processing of seaweeds and phycocolloid extraction, period. And there's a lot of innovation happening around that with groups like Macro Oceans who are looking at how can we extract the most value possible out of this out of this raw material. So I would say today we're able to produce competitive materials using this diversity of feedstocks, diversity of regions strategy. I think in the future, we're gonna have way more efficient biorefining. We're getting absolutely all the value out of the, the biomass and that'll lead to further drawdown in cost so that Biomaterials companies can succeed and thrive, as can the pharmaceuticals and the food, et cetera, et cetera. The one note I would say, if anyone's listening and they are a farmer or a processor, is that biomaterials companies like Sway do not require food-grade extracts. So the opportunities to provide less refined phycocolloids or non-food-grade phycocolloids are immense, huge. And there is no shortage to the volumes that we'll require over time. So 
if that's something that anyone is listening and is interested in, I would love to connect you with our supply team and, and have a have a chat. What does that mean for a farmer? Does, could it mean using a product that is potentially waste because of biofouling? Or could it mean using a product or adding another growing cycle? Exactly. That's exactly what it means. Yeah. Uh, use, I mean, the dream case. And one of the reasons I initially became obsessed with seaweed was seeing the work that was happening in Puget Sound using seaweed as this remediation tool to clean up biofouled waters. And how cool would it be? I mean, I think, I believe it's currently being used for concrete, but it could totally go into some packaging applications where you're not packaging food. You could absolutely use it to, you know, to package all sorts of things. So that's a, that's a big opportunity, as is everything that's happening with sargassum, of course. There are a lot of packaging applications where, again, you can take advantage of a less pure grade or a less pure feedstock. So opportunities abound, yes. So, okay, just one final point on the supply side of things. I'm curious to understand if you're currently struggling with the supply of seaweed biomass, because there is always this big theme in the industry of this chicken and egg problem, we need demand for seaweed, but then we need to supply to scale up. And which one do we want first? Which one do we push for first? And I think it'll be key to understand right now, from your point of view, do you have a supply problem? Do you have all the biomass you need or not? And also looking at the future, do you envisage any future challenges in doing so as you grow up and scale up production? Today, we do not face supply constraints because we're scaling gradually before stepping on the gas, so to speak. We want to design materials that perform well, that people love, and then really hit the, the scale button. And so today, no, we're not constrained. But the reason we focused so much on diversity of feedstocks is to help alleviate some of those tensions around available biomass in the future. What will be required is we continually optimize the use of commercially available strains, and we also partner with nonprofits, research organizations, and smaller scale farms to understand what is the role of a biomaterials company in this over, you know, this very complex landscape? And how can we use our purchasing power to support best practices as inevitably we will be using more coastline, there will be more investment going into processing, and the shared burden of growth in the biomaterials sector will be necessarily distributed across a lot of different suppliers of, of seaweed and, and of processed phycocolloids. So yeah, I would say today, not an issue in the future, definitely. And it'll be through collaboration that we help address that. And it'll also be through co-investment into biorefineries, into just showcasing clear demand or showcasing our projections for growth over time. And yeah, not getting, <laughs> not repeating the, the woes of the past and the mistakes that have been made in land agriculture. I, I don't know if there's more to sort of find around this topic, but, uh, but more in general, do you have any further thoughts with regard to the growing seaweed scene and the, the scale up of the industry? What is your approach and vision for the future if, you, if we haven't touched it on it already? 
My team understands that the seaweed industry has been around for hundreds of years and that seaweed has been either harvested or farmed for hundreds of years. So I guess all of the kind of headlines around seaweed being a savior or seaweed being the climate solution, we understand within the context of this is not new. People have been doing this. We're the newcomers here. And I, within that perspective, I think it's just really important to us to work with the phycologists and the industry experts who have been studying seaweeds for decades and to use their insights to inform our work. And then as best we can build coalitions, collaborative projects informed by that work. Because the last thing we want is to be yet another seaweed startup in the picture that maybe isn't taking into account the larger context. Not that I think other startups are doing that, but yeah, I think that would be the, that would be the risk. Do you find as it stands, collaboration is working well and, and you think that flow of information is uh, working well at the moment? I think so. I mean, here's the factor to consider is that at least in the biomaterials space, none of these solutions are commercially available. So everyone technically is competitive. However, we all have the same shared mission and goals, so we should be inclined to collaborate. And thanks to, yeah, Seagriculture, the National Seaweed Symposium, the Global Seaweed Coalition, there are so many opportunities for a lot of exchange of information in a non-competitive context around just best practices and standards that can be implemented by everyone. So I say, yeah, I think we're definitely headed on the right track. and. What can be improved is likely just more international discourse between Europe, the States, Asia, Africa, like all, you know, really bringing together all these regional perspectives and, and learnings. Especially when some, er some geographical areas such as a Asia, for example, has such a long tradition and probably a lot of knowledge that we yep. haven't been able to transfer. Yeah. And I would just highlight one more time, Sway is, does not farm seaweed. We are not processing it. The experts are the farmers and our partners. And so we're just, yeah, we're looking to them for the, for the expertise and insight. And then we want to compile and borrow those insights and reflect them back to the community. But it's, yeah, we understand it's not our role to dictate necessarily how seeds being cultivated or processed. Yeah, absolutely. How important has it been for you to focus on a specific problem and solution? As opposed to, I mean, trying to, as some other companies may have done, try to solve the whole picture, try to attack almost the whole supply chain. I really admire the organizations that are taking on the full supply chain. I think that's incredible. My expertise and my team's expertise is in biomaterial development, in packaging, in really creating solutions for a very specific problem, which is plastic. And initially we wanted to have a lot more control throughout the value chain and then realized it's much more helpful to start with focus on really the problem we're aiming to solve. And that puts us in a position to influence and support other parts of our value chain. We work really closely with partners who again, have decades, if not literal hundreds of years of insight to inform their production processes. So. We do that on both ends. We work with farmers who have perhaps been grounded in a place in some cases for thousands of years in certain indigenous communities. And then we work with traditional plastic manufacturers who again have been producing plastic in a certain way for a hundred years. And using that wisdom, we can 
make materials that are actually positioned to succeed. It's interesting that you did consider it at the beginning. Oh, well, everybody wants to be a seaweed farmer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What made you, you know, put the idea on the side and focus on, on a specific thing? I'm assuming that most people listening to this podcast have visited a seaweed farm, if not actually run a seaweed farm themselves. So everything looks so straightforward from the outside, but then you show up on site and you realize the many, many levels of complexity from the type of material that you're using to strand your crop, to harvesting methods, to the weather patterns, to the moisture content after you've harvested, and all the just the intricacies of actually cultivating a raw material in a really dynamic environment, which is the ocean. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a dream for so many people, but it's very complicated. And I would much rather those who are wiser in the ways of <laughs> cultivation continue to, to, to broaden and invest in, in those communities that are you know, already positioned to benefit from expanded cultivation. Yeah. In the context of a growing seaweed industry, which we all hope is going to materialize, what are some of the unique opportunities or untapped potential that you see in the space that maybe entrepreneurs should be paying attention to? A lot of investment is going towards finished products or it's going towards farming. And I think it should be funneled towards refining technologies. And I am by no means an expert in this space, but I, if I were to start over and try to really funnel energy and investment into a piece of the value chain, it would be related to getting all of the valuable components out of the biomass and really alleviating waste and using you know, lower chemically intensive processes to get the good stuff out of seaweed. So that would be the starting place. And then I would say the second is there's a lot of, yeah, untapped exploration into less refined seaweed period in terms not just of biomaterials, but other use cases. So those would be my big two, probably. Yeah, the, the, the biorefining pieces. I wonder, and this is could be a completely, again, completely off topic, but I, I wonder if one of the big problems there is the significant amount of R&D that is necessary to do that. Yeah, it's a high bar to clear. I think the opportunities that I've seen emerging the most are these very, you know, micro scale processing dropship types of refining tech technologies. The one that I think would be most compelling is just retrofitting perhaps outdated fishing or like mm. uh, lobster processing centers for this type of extraction. Because, yeah, the, the, the capital intensity of investing in any of these processing facilities is high. But the demand is huge. I mean, there's no, there's no cap on how much seaweed we can technically feasibly cultivate out in the oceans. And obviously, we want to see that grow. So uh, it, it could very well be a, a bottleneck. What you were saying about the chicken or the egg, I mean, the availability of space to cultivate seaweed is not inhibited. The issue is that folks are not necessarily driven to expand cultivation because there's no necessary use case. And then on the other side, innovators are stymied in terms of their ability to innovate because they, they want like assurances that all of the material that they use can be utilized. So it's a really interesting interplay, but I do think we'll have it resolved, especially as the biomaterials space bridging perhaps what the biofuels, you know, the biofuels opportunity presented 
mm-hmm. but perhaps didn't deliver on. Biomaterials can kind of bridge that gap where there's an immense amount of volume that needs to be processed and can actually be delivered on. To make it a bit more personal, the, the answer might be the same, but what change or innovation would make your life specifically easier? The innovation or change that would make my life specifically easier, I think, would be and related to the seaweed supply chain, you mean? It could be, it could be anything, really. To be honest. Oh, broadly, broadly speaking. It could mm. be anything because obviously I'm looking from the point of view of entrepreneurs potentially serving companies like Sway that might want to try and, and, and solve any, you know, and alleviate any pain points that you as uh, the, the biomaterial producer might be experiencing. So it, it could be anything really. All right. Zooming out, coming more back to this issue of plastic production, Mm -hmm. we'll just provide the context that 99% of plastics are made from petroleum. And the reason for that is it is the most heavily subsidized, convenient, efficient process available on Earth. And if we were to calculate the holistic cost of plastics, especially in this emerging net zero landscape where brands are having to consider their packaging and and their materials usage in their scope three emissions, If we were to place a true cost on plastic, and then if we were able to treat investment into seaweed aquaculture, into the blue economy, into seaweed as a feedstock with the same or similar subsidies, would then plastic and and seaweed play in an even playing field? So I think, yeah, what would make my life personally easiest (laughs) is if, (laughs) if, if, uh, you know, I'm, I'm speaking through the lens of the U.S. government, but... I think it would apply globally. If we were to treat the holistic value that seaweed cultivation presents to subsidize it and to be able to level the playing field with the plastic industry, that would be most directly helpful. My second personal ask would be that we ease up the permitting process for seaweed cultivation and that seaweed cultivation can play a role in coastal restoration. So more research there would be appreciated and valued as well. I knew there was a gem hidden in there. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's that's really interesting. And I I think other industries would relate. You know, when you think about the true cost of something rather than just the consumer perspective or the end user perspective and cost. Yep. Plastic causes harm at literally every step of the supply chain. The extraction of petroleum, the pollution and waste that happens throughout the processing phase and then what happens after the material is used. It's polluting our bodies, it's polluting our nature, (laughs) and then it's also oftentimes being incinerated and feeding back into the cycle of pollution. All of that requires remediation, cleanup, investment in infrastructure, etc. And yeah, if we were to balance that out with all the opportunities that seaweed cultivation presents, especially as we're, you know, investing in the bioeconomy and looking at ways that we can improve ocean health, at least in the United States, there are all these emerging commitments to preserving, you know, 30% of all our oceans or switching 90% of all plastics over to bio-based sources. How do we get there if we're, we don't get a little bit of help along the way? Bit of a push. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Which the fossil fuel industry has benefited from for quite a long time so it wouldn't be unreasonable no okay thanks for that in your opinion 
what are the key factors that have contributed to Sway's success? What I would be really interested in is, are there any unconventional strategies or approaches that you've implemented? We're a design-led organization. So my background as a designer and my co-founders' backgrounds in development practice, circular systems design, brand building, have oriented the whole trajectory of the company to be very consumer-facing, even though we are a B2B company. So we deliver materials to manufacturers and to brands, but our entire identity and the way that we've structured Sway is to interface as much as possible with the consumer because actual change happens when people understand a very complex issue and a very complex solution in the simplest terms possible and with as much information and science to back it up as possible. And that happens through design. That has really helped Sway on this journey because people need to visualize impossible futures. They need to see what that future looks like and feel excited or motivated about it. In a very intense environment where there's a lot of climate doom and overwhelm, we have to have attractive, beautiful, inviting, accessible stories for people to feel like they can be a part of the solution. Absolutely. And imagining, envisioning a scenario in which it all goes to, okay, how can I say this without cursing? (laughs) All goes to heck. (laughs) It's a lot easier than imagining a, a scenario in which everything works perfectly, in which we actually do make it. And so in a way, proposing an optimistic vision and getting the public to understand that optimistic vision it's a lot more difficult than getting people to understand a very pessimistic scenario and how it yeah. could all go wrong. Absolutely. People say plastic is bad. I don't want plastic. But then the company using the plastic or use, you know, using that material doesn't necessarily have a better alternative or they're not aware. I think the, one of the best ways to funnel frustration is towards a solution. One of my biggest frustrations as a consumer is oftentimes in these very complicated issues that I don't fully understand around energy, food, clothing, housing, I don't necessarily know the solutions. So the more that we can hold up the solutions and say, they're here, we just need to adopt them, yeah. <laughs> the, the more likely you are to affect actual change. Yeah. I can't remember where I heard this, but very recently I heard this, or oh, was it from you? I think it might be doing the research on you. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is, and sorry if this is completely incorrect, but it was something around who's closest to the problem is most likely closest to the solution. Was that you? It wasn't me. It was me quoting Dr. Ian Elizabeth Johnson. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> no, I was, I was just going to ask, in what way were you close to the problem that then created sway? Sorry, but very badly worded question. That's okay. I love the, the phrase from Dr. Anna Elizabeth Johnson, which says, those who are closest to the problem are necessarily closest to the solution. And as a designer building brand and packaging systems, I was very close to the plastic problem because usually I was the person introducing those materials to a brand system. And usually if I tried to pitch an alternative material, they would fall short in one way or another. Uh, whether it was they didn't actually 
biodegrade or they cost way too much or they weren't actually made from plants, et cetera, et cetera. And so this led me to become absolutely obsessed with the solution, which is the way you get brands to say yes to the better solution is by being truly biodegradable, by being cost-effective, by being truly bio-based. And then that forces you to explore the whole realm of alternatives that have maybe been underexplored and led me to this obsession with natural polymers and regeneration. And that just leads you to seaweed. I mean, there's really no two ways about it. So, yeah, yeah. frustrated with the, you know, very close to the problem of plastic pollution and packaging in general, and then very close to the solution, which is brands want beautiful, compelling materials that come from nature. Okay. Well, that leads me very well onto my next question, which is to give you a bit of context. I was talking with um, Sam Garwin from Greenwave very recently, who came on the uh, podcast. And we tried to draw a distinction between what might drive an impact entrepreneur at a personal level versus what might drive demand toward the product or service that their business might offer. So from you personally, what did you set out to solve when you decided to start your business? The personal motivation is disgust with waste and pollution as well as a total love for the ocean, having grown up next to the ocean and having a decent amount of understanding around marine biology and just like all the opportunities that the ocean presents. Okay, so to flip it on the other side then, from your customer perspective, what is the problem or frustration you are solving for them? Discussed with plastic waste and pollution. <laughs> um, no, I mean, the no, increasing, be. yes, definitely. But the increasing tailwinds are just legislation around single-use plastic usage, right. increased extended producer responsibility. There is a UN global treaty on plastics that's coming out that will really curb plastic consumption and production. And there's also the consumer, yeah, disgust with plastic and pollution. So I think uh, there is overlap there, definitely. U ultimately, what will make us succeed in the market is that our material will perform well and will be effective in terms of the cost trade-off. Because a lot of these brands will find ways of discovering loopholes in the emerging legislation. Mm -hmm. What they want to do is satisfy the consumer who may or may not care about the, the packaging. And in the end, they'll make the decision based on pennies. So in that sense, that's where it's really interesting to understand what, it, what could be the biggest drive for these plastic manufacturers to adopt your material. Would it be more, does legislation potentially provide a bigger push for manufacturers, or do you think is could be the sustainability element and the and the pressure that consumers might put on them in, in demanding a better product or a more sustainable product. For the manufacturer, the demand will come from brands who are having to answer to the consumer who no longer wishes to have plastic packaging. For the brand, the biggest push will come from legislation and stricter definitions of which materials are approved and how they can be used and matchmaking between 
Is this material likely to be recycled or composted? Can it be package free? And just kind of navigating that complexity because certainly not what, I, I'm not advocating that all materials switch to compostable materials. I'm not saying that everything should be seaweed. There's a place for each solution. It will, there will be no silver bullet. So I'd say, yeah, understanding and navigating that complexity based on the guidance of legislation as well as organizations that all of these brands have committed to, like the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, to guide decision-making around packaging. Yeah. Who do you see as your um, customers? Is it more the brands or the plastic manufacturers? Both. We work with both. Part of change is enabling plastic manufacturers to switch to materials that work within their systems. And then part of the change also happens by making it really easy for brands to work with us. We're primarily focused on fashion, home goods, and food brands, switching out their packaging systems, primarily looking at bags and wrappers and pouches, these really difficult to recycle materials that can benefit from a compostable material instead and are consumer facing such that you get to put in the marquee, this is made from seaweed, seaweed does all these amazing things. Look at the farms that we're working with, aren't they amazing? That's our, our strategy at the moment. How in that sense, or more in general, how important is that your material can work with existing machinery, with existing traditional plastic machinery? It's the number one criteria. Really? Wow. Um, it's the number one criteria. You cannot require that there is an entire overhaul of a system that's been optimized and refined to process and convert traditional plastic over the past hundred years. You have to design for what exists. And the challenge isn't just in the production of the material, it's how do you actually convert a roll of film into a finished bag. These machines are tooled for traditional plastic. You have to. You have to design for that system or it would require an overhaul of the entire value chain. And you'd get laughed at by a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of um, folks who, I guess, want to see change happen. But yeah, it's not logical at all to ask them to overhaul their entire system. Talk about, you know, reducing friction as much as possible. That would be just too much. Too much. Okay. Just to stay on this for just a little bit longer, wh who do you see as your competitors at the moment and in, in the near future? Would it be traditional plastic materials or other biomaterials? When we have conversations with brands, they're either working with yeah, traditional plastic, petroleum-based plastic, LDPE or OPP, or in some cases, recycled plastic. Or they're working with paper, or they're working with a corn-based packaging alternative, a PLA. So those are the, that's the landscape at the moment. And across all of those solutions, there are shortcomings that we can help address. And in terms of your competitive advantage in this uh, scenario, what would be the biggest factor in choosing you versus any of the ones you mentioned? Against plastic, it's that we are a bio-based material that regenerates oceans. Against paper, it's that we can convert the same way that traditional plastic does, which is just more efficient and more scalable. Yeah. And against PLA, a similar thing around, yeah, the, the origin story and the end of life. A lot of corn-based 
plastics are not truly biodegradable in nature, and they're sourced from a, a you know a land-based crop that requires a lot of land and fresh water and time and pesticides and all that. So this this is the perfect time to then introduce, and I did say we're going to come back to it, the concept of biological circularity. Could you please talk to the concept and how it differs from mechanical circularity? Generally, when we think about circularity, the solutions that are proposed are re systems of reuse and systems of recycling. And recycling is typically thought of as mechanical recycling, where you're taking plastic or glass or aluminum or whatever else, whatever other material, and you're reconstituting it in, into its original form. And biological circularity works with a similar frame of logic that you're not losing value from the biological material, but actually feeding it into a system where it continues to provide value. So if we invest in biological systems of circularity, the benefit is there's a lesser risk that we're losing value along the way. We can't just perpetually create more and more materials that feed on top of each other to create this mountain of, of plastic. We have to think about how we can feed other systems. So by working with seaweed, we are obviously contributing to healthier oceans, to coastal communities. We're turning it into a valuable material that can package and protect all sorts of products. And then after it's used, it is composted either in a home or industrial environment creating healthy soil in the process. It serves as a soil amendment. The seaweed actually gives value, nutrient value, after it's been used. And then that, that compost can be used within regenerative agriculture on land. It can contribute to healthier gardens. It's actually, again, feeding this biological loop where we're then producing food or, or we're producing flowers or, or trees or whatever else, however the material is used. And I love that. I love that because then we're actually creating value at every step of the, of the supply chain. Definitely. And uh, you say creating value. I, I don't know if this is something that you've looked into at all, but uh, is there an opportunity for additional revenue streams to come from these end-of-life uses that your material could provide? I think so. Yeah. There's always opportunity to collaborate with folks throughout our value chain to see what are the what are the opportunities for us to invest hmm. or design where there hasn't been investment or design in the in the past. I think that especially and most clearly applies to the seaweed processing phase, but it probably applies to the use and composting stage as well. Julia, before we bring to this uh, to a close, is there anything else you want to talk about? The only kind of point I would highlight, I think we've already covered it in so many words. We really care a lot about partnering with smaller scale farms, even though smaller scale farms may not have access to phycocolloid processing yet. They may not be able to produce agar, alginate, or carrageenan. We're really interested in supporting and helping inform business decisions based on what we know of the of the seaweed landscape. So. I would just extend an offer from my team to help write letters of support, to help inform what strains or species of seaweed that you're cultivating, depending on different industry needs. That's um, yeah, a big passion of mine and of the whole Sway team. Fantastic. For those that might want to get in touch, what's the best way to reach out? 
You can email team at swaythefuture.com. And we have an array of interest forms throughout our website related to piloting with Sway or learning more at swaythefuture.com. Brilliant. And that's where everybody else can find you in terms of wanting to find out more about Sway and what you guys are doing. I suppose your website, anywhere on social media that you want to point people to? Oh, yeah. We got a robust LinkedIn and Instagram page at Sway the Future. Thank you so much for the chat. Thank you. It was lo lots of fun. Yes, absolutely. And you, you covered so many interesting points that I think may not have come up. I'm sure I haven't come up in the past. They don't typically. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. Yeah, no. So, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. All the best for the future of Sway. And thank you all for tuning in. Take care. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you.